Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be continuing in Mark chapter 7. For those who are visiting or haven't been here in recent weeks, we've been in Mark 7, 1 to 23. This is going to be the third week. It's yet another controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus. But in this one, uh, Jesus kind of uh, uh, unwraps and lays out the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's talked about the source of our moral authority because the Pharisees thought it was the tradition of the elders. Jesus said, no, it was the Scripture. Uh, he had also uncovered the nature of true cleanness versus ritual impurity. And then this week, we're going to be looking at what is the position of God's law in the New Covenant. So we're just going to read the last half, verses 14 to 23. But Jesus is, you know, he's been having this discourse with them, and now he's speaking to the crowds. So Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, you can follow along with me. Hear now the word of our covenant God. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. If I were to ask you, what is the center of our solar system? What would you say? The sun. I mean, some of you are even laughing, like what a silly question, right? But actually, through most of human history, what did we think was the center of the solar system? The earth. And there was actually a model that explained the universe with the earth at the center. It was what was known as the Ptolemaic model. And it basically, it worked, but they kept having to add footnotes to it, so to speak, to try and figure out. In fact, you know, the, the biggest things that are hard, they kind of figured out the stars pretty well and, and constellations. They didn't know that's what they were, but the planets gave them fits. And so actually the word from which we derive planet is the Greek word that means wandering because it appeared like the planets wandered around. But what they kept saying is, well, the planets kind of did little curly cues around and every once in a while backed up and then went around and they kept coming up with the system. But over time, it got more and more and more convoluted. And then, 
in the early 1500s, a man named Copernicus said, how about this? What if we put the sun in the center and we move around it and then everything falls into place and we don't have to do all of these exceptions to the rule? And everything changed. Everything fell into place. The system was very clean. It made sense. And to us today, we can even laugh at the question because, well, obviously the sun is at the center. But the reason that people thought the earth was at the center is because what does it appear like to us? It appears like the earth is at the center. But the problem is, is when you operate with that, things get very complex and convoluted. Now, I bring this up because that was an earth-shattering moment when Copernicus said that. We live hundreds of years later, it seems, intuitive to us. At that moment, all kinds of people didn't know what to do with it. It seemed like everything had changed because in a certain sense it had. And I bring this up because the passage we just read is like the Copernican Revolution. You and I look at it centuries later and say, oh, what's the big deal? You know, whether you eat those foods or don't eat those foods, to the people listening to Jesus, you had just shifted and the earth was no longer at the center, the sun was in the center, and everything had just completely shifted and changed. It was a huge change. But when you do that, everything falls into place. Everything makes sense. The Pharisees had a system, but the system didn't really work because it had confused what was at the center of God's law and what was at the periphery of God's law. So that's what we want to talk about today. So let's begin by looking at this. It's just a few words, but there is a massive change going on. Jesus has been talking about you know, you know, real impurity versus false impurity because remember the disciples had eaten food without ceremonially washing their hands. They'd come back from the marketplace and the Pharisees said, how are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Because to the Pharisees, it was what was outside that made you unclean and created your problem. And that was whether it was food or contact with Gentiles or all kinds of external things. But notice what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19. Don't you understand? Nothing that's outside of you is what makes you unclean. Those things cannot make you unclean because even food, much less being around a Gentile, even food, you take it into your body, but it just goes to your stomach and out of your body. It does not make you unclean. Impurity is not a matter of something coming from outside, but something arising up from inside. What makes you unclean is the impurity that arises from the heart. But this is revolutionary. And then what I love is Mark drops a little comment in for us in verse 19 because he's again explaining to the Gentiles. Remember, he said explain to them this whole thing about purity and impurity and all these ceremonial washings because the Gentiles didn't do any of this. But notice in, in verse 19, Mark inserts a little comment. In the NIV, notice it puts parenthesis around it. There's no parenthesis in Greek. Okay, those, they didn't exist. They didn't use parentheses. But it's a little comment by Mark. Jesus didn't say this. Mark is telling us what Jesus' words mean. That's why the NIVs put it in parenthesis. He's drawing out the implications. By Jesus saying that nothing from outside going into you makes you impure, he's telling us it means that all food is clean. Simple little statement. The whole world has just shifted. 
we've just moved from the earth being at the center to the sun being at the center. Everything is going to shift. Now, why do I say this? Because the Old Testament, this wasn't the tradition of the elders. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant law had many foods that were unclean. That was not a Pharisee's idea. This was in the Old Testament Scripture. So, for example, I'll just give one of them. Leviticus 11, 7, and 8. And the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. So this is not the the tradition of the elders. This was not something that was added to the Scripture. It was directly in there in God's law for his people. And what that meant is you can't eat bacon. Who is glad to know we don't live under that law anymore? I mean, no tasty bacon. They couldn't have it. And that was God's word for them. So how can Mark say Jesus is just saying, yeah, that doesn't apply anymore? But what If that's true, then what else applies or doesn't apply? Is it just some strange matter? Is it kind of like the old Ptolemy system? We just got to start having planets do weird things, which will kind of predict how they move, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that they would be doing that, and sometimes they just back up, but, but it kind of explains the system. Or is Jesus telling us, no, this is the way the whole thing was designed from the beginning? So what we want to think about is what Jesus is really driving at here is the place of God's law in the new covenant. Christ has come to institute the new covenant, and we need to understand how the law works within that. Now, to understand that, there are basically three major aspects to God's law that we read about in the Scripture. First off, there is God's moral law, which is oftentimes what we think of today that is things like things that govern moral behavior. So no murder, no sexual sin, no stealing, no lying, no uh, you know, uh, slandering one another. All of these kinds of things is what the Scripture was saying. That was God's moral law. But there was also a ceremonial law. That was all the stuff that had to do with the priest and all the things that went on at the temple. And it was full of cultic rituals and ceremonies and practices which were keeping Israel distinct from the nations. It was Israel's a nation. It was saying, you're God's people. You're being distinct. And let me give you some very visible things that show this. And that included basically three large areas. Number one was the food laws. So I just read two verses about the pig, but there's all kinds of stuff. You couldn't eat shellfish. You were allowed to eat cows, but you couldn't eat this kind of animal. There were all of these food laws. And it was, that was showing them that you, you have a dietary separation from the nations. You don't eat like the nations do. Secondly, there was circumcision, which was a bodily separation from the nations. And make no mistake, most people didn't circumcise. And in fact, when the Greeks ran into the Jews, they thought that was disgusting. Why would you circumcise? But God said, you have to circumcise. And in fact, if you don't circumcise, you are cut off from the people of God, which is kind of a play on the word because circumcision means to cut off. And God said, if you don't cut it off on the males, then you are cut off from the people. You cannot be part of my people. And the third part was the whole sacrificial system, 
when you break my moral laws or even if you break my ceremonial laws, I am giving you a means to cover those over. Here's all of the rules for the sacrifices that go on down at the temple. So that was the second type of law. There's God's moral law, there's God's ceremonial law, and then third, there is the civil law, which said, Israel, you're a nation. As a nation, you have to have laws that govern how people behave. And the civil law was uh, the application of both the moral and the ceremonial law to Israel's specific time and place. It even governed things, for example, that on your roof you had to build railings around it. Now why? We wouldn't do that on our roofs because where did you usually entertain guests in ancient Israel? On the roof. So it was a way of saying somewhat like we say, if I build a pool in my backyard, what do I have to put around it? A fence so that little children in the neighborhood don't wander and fall into the pool. It was just a way of saying you're, you're supposed to make sure that nobody gets hurt, so you're going to put a railing around. But it was for Israel's specific time and place. Now, I'm not really going to deal with the civil law today. That's what after hours will be about because I just don't have time to go into it. So whether the civil law applies. But I really want us to look at how the New Testament teaches about that ceremonial law and why it's important for us to understand this. The, what the New Testament teaches, very simply, is the ceremonial law is fulfilled and no longer in effect. Okay? This is why... Mark puts that little statement in parentheses there and saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Understand, we've just shifted and put the sun at the center and the earth on the outside. But then when we understand that, everything falls into place. I mentioned that there were three parts, the food laws, the circumcision, and the sacrificial system. I want to show you that all three are specifically told in the New Testament they are no more. They don't exist anymore. First, the food laws. Notice Mark tells us here in Mark chapter 7, that Jesus himself declared all foods clean. But this continued to be a struggle in the early church because they said, well, the foods might be clean, but what if the food has been sacrificed to an idol? What about that? But the Apostle Paul says, but don't you understand what goes from outside into you can't make you unclean. So he writes to the Corinthians who had a question about this, and it actually takes three chapters. I'm just going to give a couple of verses here. But he's writing about this question of what about food that's been sacrificed to an idol? And so Paul says, so then about food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Paul's saying, look, we all realize there isn't really a Zeus. He doesn't actually exist. There's not really, you know, a Mars or an Aphrodite. None of them actually exist. We understand that. But then he continues in verse 7. But not everyone knows this. Some people struggle with this. And he says, some people are still so accustomed to idols, and he's speaking here of Christians, that when they think, when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse uh, if we do not eat, and no better if we do. So you see what Paul's saying is the same thing that Jesus said. Look, it's just food. It's not changed when it's sacrificed to an idol that suddenly it's going to defile you by going into you. It doesn't. But there are Christians who struggle with this. And so what he's, 
what Paul goes on to say is, look, there's nothing wrong with you eating that meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. It doesn't make you impure. But if you hurt your brother, you're not acting in love. That makes you impure. Because it's not that the ceremonial law, that doesn't matter. But if you're not acting according to God's moral law, loving your neighbor as yourself, that does matter. That's why it takes Paul three chapters to go through. So Paul here says, look, food doesn't matter. It's of no consequence. But realize how huge that is, because I can show you a lot of verses in the Old Testament that say it was of consequence. Secondly, the same thing is true regarding circumcision. Remember, if you weren't circumcised, you couldn't be part of the people of God. Here's the Apostle Paul. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means what? Anything. What counts is a new creation. 1 Corinthians 7, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now, of course, someone might come back and say, well, but being circumcised was one of God's commands. But see, Paul's point is, yes, it was one of the ceremonial commands. And those don't count in the new covenant. The new covenant, which is the new creation, that's what matters. Are you in God's covenant people by faith? If you are, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised is of no consequence. Circumcision, uncircumcision does not bring you to God. That's not what God's trying to do in this. It is keeping God's commands, which is a reference back to the moral law, because circumcision was commanded in the ceremonial law. But Paul's saying it doesn't matter because the ceremonial law is no longer in effect. Same thing is said regarding sacrifices. The, the biggest part of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament was the whole sacrificial system. But notice what we read about the sacrificial system um, in the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read two little sections. I'll drop out a couple of verses because they just expand kind of what Jesus is doing in heaven at present. Starting in verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We mentioned this last week. Sitting down, what does that mean regarding Jesus' work? It's done. He doesn't have to do it day after day, year after year. The, the new song we learned this morning, Christ the true and better Adam, the true and better Isaac, the true, th th that's basically the book of Hebrews. Whatever you think, Christ is the true and better priest. He is the true and better sacrifice. When he does it once, it's done for all time. And you don't go back to the old shadows, the types. Notice how he goes on in verses 16 to 18, and he's relating this to the coming of the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. He's quoting out of Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Do you notice in all of these, what they're saying is, look, the Old Testament ceremonial law was there to be a picture. It was a type. It was a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. But once he has come and he has fulfilled it, you don't do it anymore. 
and you could actually build all of these and go through. Now, most of us understand this as Christians. What, what if today, instead of coming to the Lord's table, I pulled a little lamb out and I slit its throat and said, everybody come up here and I'm going to put some blood on you and you'll be forgiven by me doing that. What would you all do? Hopefully run out of the building or stone me or do something, right? Because you would say, what, what, what are you doing? Jesus has been sacrificed. You don't need to do that. Well, guess what? Jesus has also undergone circumcision for us. Jesus has also obeyed the whole ceremonial law, the food laws, everything else. He's done it all. We no longer have to do that. The New Testament is replete with this over and over again. The New Testament is clear. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Covenant ceremonial law, and it is no longer of any effect in the New Covenant. So, eat all the bacon you want. Eat all the shrimp you want. Choose to get circumcised or not circumcised or circumcise your kids or not circumcise your kids. It's of no effect whatsoever. You need not do any of that. It has no significance any longer. Now, that is a massive shift. But here's the problem. Some people hear this and kind of like the old Ptolemaic system, they're trying to, they're not understanding and they're saying, well, if I can eat shellfish, then the moral law must not be in effect either. I mean, if God changed his mind about shellfish, then maybe he's changed his mind about stealing or sexual sin or lying. Maybe he's changed his mind on those things. But the answer is no. That's the Ptolemaic system. That's all this weird stuff. It's very clean and clear. Ceremonial law, gone. Moral law is actually eternal because the moral law is based on God's unchanging character. See, God doesn't say, don't eat pig meat because, ooh, pigs, they're disgusting. No, God made pigs. It was a ceremonial thing to be a picture pointing forward to Christ. Once Christ has come, that goes away. But the commands don't murder. We don't murder because God creates life. He doesn't destroy. The, the thief, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. God gives abundant life. We don't commit sexual sin because God is faithful and pure. We don't lie because God is the truth. We don't steal because God gives. All of these are based on his character, and is God's character changing? No, it's eternal. So it doesn't matter whether you were before the Mosaic Covenant, under the Mosaic Covenant, in the New Covenant, or all of eternity. Okay, we're, we're not going to do ceremonial law in heaven, right? Guess what else I'm not going to do? Steal, lie, commit adultery, murder. I'm not going to do any of that in heaven either because that is God's eternal nature. So notice how the old covenant does this. Jesus specifically refers to the moral law for purity. See, the Pharisees in their weird system said, well, what really matters is whether, you know, when you come into contact with something unclean, you wash your hands and stuff. And Jesus says, that's insane. You've got impurity completely backwards. Impurity is about the moral law and you violating it in your heart and it coming out into your actions. 
So notice how he does this. Again, beginning at verse uh, 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Jesus has just said the ceremonial law, done. Then notice what he says. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from inside, all these evils, and they are what makes a man unclean. So ceremonial law no longer in effect, but what can still make me unclean? Violating the moral law. If I eat pork, am I unclean? What if I murder someone? Yes. What if I lie? I'm greedy. I commit some sort of sexual sin. Okay, I steal. All of these things, Jesus says, see, that's what makes you unclean. So notice it's in the same breath. Ceremonial law done, moral law still here. Right there in one breath. He's He's saying this sin is about breaking the moral law, which never changes and is still fully in effect. So, so let me just say, if you listen in our culture right now, you hear this brought up all the time. I just saw a quote uh, last week by former President Carter, who's done some really good things, but he, he clearly is not a theologian, and he stated, well, Jesus never spoke about these things. Yeah, he did. Right here. In this verse we just read, he said, all of this is still binding. What defines what is truth versus what is lie? God's moral law. What defines what is stealing? God's moral law. What defines what is sexual sin? God's moral law. It's right there. It is laid out for us, and it is doing. So anybody who says he didn't speak to things like homosexuality, they're wrong. He's speaking to it right here. He's saying the moral law is still in effect. And just as a sideline, too, you, you'll sometimes hear Christians today refer to themselves as red-letter Christians. Don't ever refer to yourself as that. How much of the Bible is God's Word? All of it. Does it matter whether we printed some of the words in red or not? No. When Paul spoke, who was speaking? God, the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. When Moses spoke, who is speaking? The Holy Spirit is speaking through him. When Jesus speaks, who is speaking? The Holy Spirit is speaking through him. It is all the same. There is no such thing as red-letter Christian. That's What that is saying is, I kind of like the Ptolemaic system, so I'm going to pick and choose the little parts I like out of the Bible. We don't do that. That's a bad way to live. Follow what God says. Some of the law, the ceremonial law, is no longer in effect because it was always only intended for a brief period of time. If I go buy a new car, they're somewhat changing this these days, but what, what do you normally get when you buy a new car? What kind of license plate? A temporary one, right? What happens when I get the real license plate? What do I do with the temporary one? I should probably keep it, right, because a police officer will say, where's the temporary tag? If you're not doing the temporary tag, then you're just being arbitrary, right? No, it only had a purpose to get me to the permanent tag, okay? But do I have to have a tag? Yes, I do have to have a tag. I do have to have it registered, okay? God's moral law is the permanent tag. The ceremonial law was just temporary. Notice the same thing is brought up by the Apostle Paul 
And he brings this up particularly in the letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, the Corinthians had, and you can see these things in quotes, they had come up with sayings because the Corinthians had said, so we're free from all that food law stuff and everything? Awesome. Everything, notice in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13, everything, can you go ahead and shift, there you go. Everything is permissible for me. That was their takeaway. Ah, I can eat shrimp. I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, uh, not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me. Yeah, but see, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. See, all this food is here. I can eat whatever I want. But notice what Paul goes on and says, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for body. Now, why does Paul bring up sexual immorality there when they're talking about food? Because what was the very next place the Corinthians went? Sexual immorality. Sweet. I can eat bacon and I can go to the temple and sleep with the temple prostitutes. And Paul says, uh, no. That is not correct. That is not what God says in his word. Notice again in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, this is as he's continuing on this thing. Circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't mean anything, but we still keep God's commands. We still keep the law that he has given us. So the Corinthians made the mistake of thinking it's either all or nothing. Either you say, if I don't have to be circumcised or I, or I don't have to follow the food laws, then I can live however I want. And Paul said, no, that's not true. Okay, well, then I have to try and keep the entire law. That's what the Galatians started doing. I got to go back and start getting circumcised. And Paul there loses his mind and says, what are you doing? You're going back to slavery. Th those were just temporary things that were put there. You don't go back to them. So Paul is telling us here is the same pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled and therefore is abrogated. It no longer is there, but the moral law is still fully in effect. So how do we apply this? What does this mean to us? There are several reasons why this is important, and we've taken time to expand this passage. Number one, it recognizes that Jesus is at the center of Scripture. Jesus is at the center. See, this was Copernicus moving the sun into the center, the S-U-N sun. When you move Jesus into the center of Scripture, everything falls into place. The Pharisees are concerned about little ceremonial things, and they've got Jesus off on the periphery. They're concerned about the ceremonial law and the moral laws off on the periphery, and Jesus says, no, that's, that's weird. That doesn't make any sense at all. Christ is the center of Scripture. The ceremonial law was just looking forward to him. In fact, in the discussion guide, we've got some teachings where we really, really delve into that because the whole Old Testament finds its focus and its fulfillment in Christ. All of Scripture has to be viewed through the lens of Jesus. His person and his work affect how we understand and properly apply Scripture. Please hear me. It didn't just mean, you know what, we've decided pork was tasty, so we're doing away with the food laws. That's not what's going on. The food laws were in effect until the Messiah came. Once he comes, they've reached their end. They are no more. They go away. But that's because everything was always about him. They were just pointing forward to him. That's what they were doing. Second thing, it helps us understand the Bible consistently and clearly. 
if we don't understand between the various aspects of the law, uh, understanding and applying the Scripture becomes arbitrary. Okay, and that's what some people claim Christians are doing today. You're just picking and choosing. And let me say very clearly, if we are just picking and choosing, then pox on us. That's wrong. This, this isn't a matter of picking and choosing what I like and what I don't like out of the Scripture. We're called to obey God. And so it's important that we understand the progressive nature of God's covenants and the place of the law within them, or else we are guilty. I mean, I laugh sometimes at people who basically say the, the law does not apply at all to the Gentile church. There's a whole group that say that was just for Israel in the Old Testament. It has no application. And then when they don't like something somebody's doing, they go back and rip a verse out of context in the Old Testament and say, but you've got to follow this. Um, all that tells me is you don't like that thing, whatever it is. That is not how we are to, to understand and apply the Scripture. And again, going back to my introduction, that's kind of like Ptolemy. That's saying, well, this doesn't seem to fit, so we're going to make the planet go backwards for a while to get our system to work. That's a sign something's wrong. Third thing, this recognizes both the continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenants. The Old Covenant is full of all kinds of types and shadows that pointed forward to Jesus. And when we're reading the Old Testament, it can seem really strange to us if we don't keep that in mind. But we should always be saying, how does this point me towards Christ? What does this do to show me what he's doing? But then once he's come, they no longer apply. That's why the whole ceremonial law does not apply anymore. It's also why, which I'll bring up in after hours, there are well-meaning evangelical Christians today, but wanting to make us a Christian nation, and we're going to somehow apply the law, and we're like Israel, we're at a different time in redemptive history. That's not the goal, and it will not work, okay? And all of that is a misunderstanding of the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. But there are parts that were not types and shadows. They're part of God's unchanging revelation for human beings because they are part of who God is and what he is like and how he has made the universe. Which leads to the fourth point, which is that it recognizes the moral law does not change across time or cultures and it still applies today. The ceremonial law was given to Israel, not to everybody else. Nobody else was responsible for it, just Israel. But it was given to them for a time and a, and, a, and a period. It's not based on God's unchanging nature. But again, the moral law is based on, on God's unchanging nature. Please hear, God was not arbitrary and said, you know, I made these people, should probably come up with some rules. Okay, how about this? Let's see, should I let them murder or not? That's not how this worked. God does not murder, therefore the whole universe is built where murder bad doesn't matter what culture, what time, murder is always bad. Have there been cultures that tried to say it was okay? Yeah, think Nazis. Murder on a mass scale is okay. Think Stalin and the Soviet Union. Like 30 million people, murder was okay. All right? The ancient Spartans, it wasn't stealing that was bad, it was getting caught that was bad. Okay, those are violations. No, that's not the way God has made the universe. It never changes. 
which leads to the fifth point. The moral law is showing us, and this is what's important, it's showing us how to be like Jesus and to experience an abundant, overflowing life. Now, if I were to ask you, who in here wants an abundant, overflowing life? Okay, I won't ask you to raise your hand because what's the point? We would all, I mean, nobody says, hey, curse sounds good to me. We all want an abundant, overflowing life. But it's not that God says, be a good boy or girl, and if you do exactly what I'm saying. No, God's saying, here's who I am. Here's who Jesus is. And I made you in my image. So how are you created to be? Like me. And the whole universe bears my fingerprints. And so if you want an abundant, blessed life, run with the grain of the universe. If you run against the grain of the universe, what are you going to get? Splinters, pain, wounds, scars. It's inevitably what happens. To violate God's character is to run against the grain of the whole universe. And it only creates confusion, disorientation, pain, and problems. And that's true for individuals. That is true for families. That is true for entire cultures and civilizations. To run against who God is and the way he's made the universe never will work. On the other hand, to run in line with it, to embrace God's character is to run with the grain of the whole universe, and that creates peace, order, blessings, and life for individuals, for families, for entire societies. Not because God's arbitrary, but because it's perfectly the way things are set up. And then the last point, and we will come to the Lord's table, this can help us as we reach out to others in evangelism and apologetics. One of the big arguments that goes on is, again, are we arbitrary? And I say, if Christians are arbitrary, we should be called out. We absolutely should be called out. I've mentioned before, I remember watching on Larry King one night when there was a debate going on about, uh, you, you know, sexual practices. In this case, it happened to be uh, homosexuality, but it could be any kind of thing outside of marriage. And, and the person who purported to be a believer said to the pastor, you know, do you eat shellfish? And the pastor said, yes. So why are you allowed to eat that? The Bible said you couldn't do that. And the pastor at first got deer in the headlights look because he'd apparently slept through Bible in seminary and said, ah, God changed his mind. At which point I lost my mind, threw something at the TV and said, are you kidding me? That was your answer. Then I'm with the other person. This is just, you don't like what they're doing. That, that's no basis for anything. The, the pastor then tried to recover but it was too late. So you know, it's a simple answer. No, that was the ceremonial law. Let's go open up to Mark 7. In the same passage, Jesus said the ceremonial law is done away with, the moral law continues. Very straightforward. Which, by the way, the entire Christian church has understood until very recent times. This is not like this is something new, like, oh, Brett came up with this this week. No. All kinds of Christians have been saying, I mean, the, the church had to wrestle through this from the very beginning. So it helps us in being able to understand and explain to people. See, see, we want people to experience abundant life and joy. I want my neighbors to experience what they were made for. But we don't do that by us being arbitrary. We do that by pointing to who God is, what he's like, 
the way he's made the universe, the way he's calling us to be and showing him, it's not God being arbitrary, it's the nature of reality. And then showing him, you know what? Do you fail at that? Yes, you do. And I fail at it too. But the good news is there's a sacrifice. Not a little lamb or a goat, but the eternal son of God. And we are free and God welcomes you in even with all your pain, even with all your brokenness, even with all your struggles. And how do I know that? Because he welcomes me with all of my brokenness, all of my pain, all of my struggles. We're not really different. Whatever their struggle and sin is, it doesn't matter. Because you know what? There's points of the moral law. I'm like, okay, I'm with you, God. I understand it. And then there's points of the moral law where I'm like, okay, this one's hard. And thanks be to God that Jesus has died to cover all of that. So we're going to come to the Lord's table. And here we actually get a weekly reminder. In our worship each week, you may not think of this, but as I joked a little while ago, but it's not a joke, this is a reminder that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and done away with. Because I'm not up here killing a little lamb. And also, I'm not a priest between you and God. This is because all of that has been fulfilled. And what we're doing is, they were looking forward to the true sacrifice. We're looking back at the true sacrifice. So each week, I encourage, our worship is reminding us of this huge uh, thing that God has taught us. I'm going to begin by reading Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, and then uh, we, we will uh, do the ceremony and pass out the elements. In Hebrews 10, which I read just a minute ago, listen to what he says. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. After all that ceremonial law, they still were covered in sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You can participate in this if you're perfect. Do, do you hear me? If you're not perfect, don't reach out. But here's the good news. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are perfect. Spotless, blameless, all sin removed, and the righteousness of Christ given to you. And notice, for all time you're made perfect, forever, but you're still being made holy. See, that's the struggle. So if you've struggled this week, and you feel like 10 pounds of sin stuffed into a five-pound bag, I understand it well. And I would never take this bread into my hands if it was based on how my last week has been. But the good news is it's not. Christ has done this for us. And if you struggle, then come. Receive grace and strength to help you in your hour of need. 
For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and pass out the elements. And as they come by, again, you do not have to be a member of our congregation. You have to believe what I just stated, the gospel, that you're not, you're not perfect on your own, but Christ has made you perfect. If you do believe that, then please join with us. You can grab two cups out of each container as it comes by, and then let's just meditate on all that Christ has done for us, and we'll take together in a moment. Lord, you placed Adam and Eve in the garden paradise, giving them all they needed, and you commanded them not to eat of one single tree. But they broke your command and thus receive death and the curse for them and all their descendants. But Lord, even in the midst of the curse, you promised that through the woman a seed would come to crush the serpent's head and to set us free. And Lord, when you delivered your people Israel, you gave them many ceremonies and symbols and sacrifices to remind them of this great promised coming Savior. So your son came, born of a woman, and born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under law but had broken it. In his body, he fulfilled your law so that the ceremonial law has been abrogated and all of our offenses, breaking your moral law, have been forgiven. So Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ through which we have full redemption and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, when our father Adam and mother Eve sinned, you killed an animal to cover their nakedness but it did not remove their sin. And you commanded Israel to sacrifice animals time and again to cover their sin, but the blood of such animals could never remove sin. All of these things only pointed forward to the true Lamb of God, your Son. When Jesus came, he was sacrificed and by his blood, our sins have been forever paid for, cleansed, and removed. So we give you thanks for the blood of Christ through which we have full redemption and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. We're going to ask the Lord. The good news is, isn't it, isn't it good that we don't have to come by all those ceremonies anymore? I mean, it's hard enough to get out of bed on Sunday morning and make it here, right? What, what, if, what if you had to kill an animal on the way and 
do all kinds of, <laughs> I mean, we'd never make it, right? All that's been wiped out by Christ. But there's even greater news on top of that in the new covenant, which is God's written his law on our heart. And the Holy Spirit is there because sin distorts and destroys. So we're going to be crying out for God to fulfill all that in us by his Holy Spirit so that we can walk and be like Jesus because that's life and blessing. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that through Jesus we have been adopted as your children. And we thank you that you have sent the Spirit into our hearts so that we cry out with Jesus, Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves, but your children. And since we are your children, we are also heirs. Heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as your heirs, we cry out now, empower us now by your Spirit so that we might walk as your Son, Jesus, walked, fulfilling your moral law, living in true righteousness and holiness. Lord, we ask that you would do this so that we could experience the abundant life you have offered to us. And Lord, we also ask that this week you would open doors for us to proclaim the good news to others so that they can share in this great salvation. Lord, we long to see many come in to a knowledge and a relationship with you. So Lord, we cry out and we ask all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, May he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and spread that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.